Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Matthew 18.15-20, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy 
on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Matthew six twelve. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser when you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Mark three twenty four. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These are the words of the Lord. So today I want to talk about a subject called the opportunity of offense. Um, as you know, uh, some of you, that I took about six months of a sabbatical, and, uh, which means I uh, didn't teach or uh, lead or so forth and spent uh, extra time just away by myself. 
visited a lot of other churches to see what's going on out there and so forth. And so I came back with uh, three messages that I felt like God wants me to give to our church that are very, very, very important subjects. And uh, uh, so this is the first of the three. So I kind of planned this message months ago, but just uh, didn't take the time to give it because, you know, I kind of hate usurping the 9.30 or the 10.30 hour from our good Bible teachers, Andy and John, but uh, this was John's birthday this week, so I made him take a week off, even though he had already prepared the message and was ready. (laughs) I could have told him before he prepared the message. Hopefully he can still use it next week. Um. So you should have uh, two outlines, and I'm trying to uh, get rid of all the extra copies and so forth. Uh, The one should be called the Opportunity of Offense Scripture Verses. If you're not familiar with this, one of the things we try to uh, make sure everybody knows in our church is that we spend literally hundreds of hours uh, providing resources to help you grow. Because our slogan is acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. And um, there's a lot of emphasis in certain quarters of the church on God loving you as you are. uh, But generally that is accompanied by leaving you as you are. And uh, that's actually not very loving. Uh, God doesn't want to leave you as you are. God wants to restore everything in our lives that's not Christ-like. Because our lives were com- are completely short of what they were intended to be due to the fact that sin has, in- has affected us all. So um, all of us are less than we could be and should be. And part of the Christian walk is walking out of darkness gradually into light. Uh, unfortunately, light is always painful. Uh, some of you who know my various idiosyncrasies, which uh, we have a running debate between John Gray and I, who has more idiosyncrasies, and uh, John claims I do, and I claim he does, but, uh, but it's just fun, you know. Uh, but one of my idiosyncrasies is uh, I probably have over 150 lights in my house, and almost all of them are on dimmers and have options of how much light you bring up gradually because, you know, I don't like the light to come up too fast. <laughs> you know, and uh, I purposely have the kind of glasses that get darker in the sunlight and all that kind of stuff. So truth is, uh, always impacts you negatively when you hear it because we are not truth. And we are less than the truth. And so... Um, the truth is, you will be offended if, you, if you're going to grow in, in the Christian life. So, one of the resources we have as a church is we have these scripture sheets, and we have them on many topics. There's one on uh, God's love and forgiveness for you. There's one on uh, faith. There's one on uh, sexual immorality. There's all sorts of subjects. We probably have, what, a dozen or more of these, at least, that uh, either Stephen or Deanna or myself have put together. It's usually been a, a group a group effort. And uh, this happens to be one of them. These are scriptures. Uh, John Gray uh, 
uh, read some of these to us as the scripture readings today. They're all scriptures about the fact that you will have your feelings hurt. You will be mad at your fellow Christian brothers and sisters. And uh, you will be offended. And so uh, the second thing you should have is the actual outline for the teaching, which should say at the top, Grace Christian Fellowship, the opportunity of offense. And it looks like somebody changed the date to be today's date. It's today the 16th. We're going to go. Yeah. So because um, I had this ready last week, but we ran out of time. So let's uh, kind of get into this. And my introduction is going to be at least half of the message. The introduction goes on to page two. So the first thing by way of introduction is I want to talk about what I call the Catherine Weiss principle. <laughs> uh, hopefully everybody has at least one or two principles named after them. Uh, I had taught on this subject um, over 45 years of, of Christian leadership and so forth, probably a hundred times or something. But uh, several years ago, Catherine and I were sitting on the back deck, and I, uh, as if anybody knows uh, our, the back deck, we, uh, John and myself, Jason and John and myself, Nathan, Catherine, lots of you, uh, Deanna, have sat on the back de deck and discussed biblical studies and theology. Uh, that's just something we do. And so uh, we were discussing this subject, and my wife pointed out something I really had never given enough thought to, is that it's inevitable that you will be offended. In fact, it's the will of God that you'll be offended. In fact, you cannot grow in Christ if you're not offended. So, um, in Matthew 18, 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of its offenses. Um, for offenses must come. Woe to the, uh, to the man whom they come from. Um, but if you look down in the Luke 17 version of it, which is a little further down on the page, it actually says it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Now, the word offenses is how the New American Standard translates the Greek word there, which is the word scandalon, which etymologically speaking, we get the word scandalize. And you hear Christians say, boy, that scandalizes me. That shocks me that, you know, you as a Christian think you can watch that kind of movie or, or something, you know, whatever. You get, you get shocked about various uh, other Christians and what they consider it okay to do or not to do and, and all that kind of stuff. So the... Um, the New, New King James, I should say, I got that wrong, translates that as offense or offenses. And uh, the New American Standard and the New English translation translated as stumbling block. The ESV translates it as temptations. Um, that's a rare case where the ESV is not a very good translation because the ESV is, is usually quite good. And it's uh, uh, like the New American Standard and the New King James. It follows a principle of translating called literal equivalence, which is the best way to translate the Greek, whereas a lot of translations, like the New English Translation, the New International Version, follow what's called uh, dynamic equivalence, where you're just translating the thought or the idea, but you're not trying to be that accurate with each Greek word as you would be in a literal equivalence. 
So again, uh, Young's Literal Translation, New American Standard Bible, uh, the English Standard Version are all literal equivalents. They have different philosophies about how easy they're trying to make the English. Lots of people criticize, for instance, the New American Standard Bible because it, because it follows such literalness that sometimes the English syntax and grammar is too choppy, and therefore it's considered not a very good Bible for public reading, but almost all serious Bible students like the New American Standard Bible. Uh, the English Standard is kind of one of the best of both worlds, uh, with what they were going for. It's as easy reading as most dynamic equivalences, uh, but it fixes a lot of the problems. In particular, there's a dynamic equivalence that's become very popular called the New International Version, which is just plain not, not a very good translation. And in fact, it's probably done a lot of damage to the evangelical world because it's actually that bad. Um, and it's become the most popular Bible translation in the history of the world. It's outsold every other book, even the King James Bible, by quite a bit. Um, Anyway, so that being said, uh, the word here is in a kind of an important word. So let's talk about uh, scandalon, which we etymologically speaking get scandal from. It actually means a trap. And it's a, a noose or a snare. Uh, it's figuratively used as, uh, as for sin or the displeasure of sin. It can mean an occasion to fall or stumble something that offends, or a stumbling block. But the idea that it has, it's a kind of a, a baited trap, like don't take the bait is, is implied in the word. In fact, there's a popular Bible teaching teacher named John Bevere who has a book based on this word and these scriptures called uh, The Bait of Satan. And uh, it's not a very good book because of his theology in general is kind of dispensational, premillennial, and hyper so. Uh, but this one particular point, if he could have left out some other theological things, it would have been a, you know, it's not a book I could recommend to you, but, um, but he does get this subject right, that there's actual traps in the Christian life that God in his love for us uh, set the trap. <laughs> and he's... Uh, he's uh, where, how, whether or not you uh, grow in Christ, get off the ground with your Christian life, or how far you go with Jesus will be what you do with the bait of that trap. This subject is so uh, important that if you look at it from one direction, every time you get offended becomes one of the greatest opportunities for growth in your Christian life. It also can destroy you. If you wanted to list the things that trip Christians up and keep them from growing, I would put this as probably number one on the list. If you don't learn how to deal with what, what to do when you're offended by someone, you will never get out of the starting block, so to speak, in the Christian life. You know, you, everyone has seen uh, movies or TV uh, footage of track and field events or horse races and every once in a while you see a horse race where the, the bell goes off and all the gates open and all the horses go running. There was actually one recently one of the famous races, I don't know if it was the Preakness or whatever, and the, uh, the horses all 
you know, jumped out of the starting gate, and the jockey fell off of one of the horses, and his race was over uh, two feet from the starting gate. And that's what this subject is actually like. This subject will take you uh, when in the beginning of your Christian life and will take you to where you never make any progress ever. And the most horrifying thing about this is you will never know that. And in fact, if somebody pointed out to you, you will be in denial that, that that happened. You won't be able to see that it happened, nor will you understand that it happened. So I, I really want to stress, if I, I hope I'm being clear, you know, they have a, a slogan or saying among pastors, like, I didn't, get, I didn't feel like I delivered my soul. Like, I want to make sure that you get it, that this, I couldn't think of a more important topic to talk to us about. And in fact, this is one of those topics, you, all, you have topics where uh, people will come up to you afterwards, and in some people's mind, it's a good thing. They'll say, I thought you were speaking right to me today. And they'll consider that like a good thing. Uh, John Gray is always like that. Uh, you know, I like people who get really convicted because you never need to worry about them. My wife was always like that, when we, especially when we were first dating and first married. Every message, she'd be like, oh, that really spoke to me. I really need to repent, and I need to get right with God. And, and I said, like, I don't have to worry. That means your heart, people whose heart is that soft, uh, if anything, you just once in a while have to work with them about not overreacting. Or, but... Uh, most people underreact. Most people are like, yeah, I sure hope that guy was listening to that. <laughs> they they play, do what I call play, play pitchfork with the word. Sure hope my wife heard that message or the wife is thinking, I sure hope my husband got that one. <laughs> you know, that's called playing pitchfork. You throw it on someone else. And so um, let's get into this whole thing. The, the word... Scandalon is used 25 times in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translation of the Greek. And it's used 15 times in the New Testament. And it's a purely biblical word in the sense that it doesn't appear in other Greek ancient literature, uh, although it's taken from a Greek word that appears in, in uh, some of the Greek plays and the, and the Greek philosophers and so forth. Um, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, to be, to be, uh, scan I think it's, um, Skanda Lathan, a noose or a snare, it's, it's taken from that. But it's used, in other words, Jesus and other biblical writers adopt it for their own use in a purely biblical way. Now, the Latin word in the, in the uh, Latin Vulgate, which was the main Bible that the Western church used from about the 4th century until the time of the Reformation, uh, uses the word offendiculum. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's, uh, I'm not very good on pronunciations. Um, so, now, let's look at Luke 17.5 with that in mind. So Jesus says to his disciples, it's inevitable. In other words, you can't avoid this. You know, the sun is going to come up tomorrow. And if you have a plan for stopping that, you, I, could, I probably would say, well, let me know. I'd like to hear that. 
But probably I wouldn't because it would be a ridiculous plan. It's not going to work. If you have a way that Christians are not going to be offended, you're, you're wrong. You don't have a way. It's inevitable. It must happen that stumbling blocks or offenses come. And so um, in verse 3, Jesus says, be on your guard about these stumbling blocks. Now, one of the things that I learned early in my Christian life that I probably haven't lived up to, and sometimes you know things more than you're able to appropriate them, is Jesus uses the phrase, beware or be on your guard, quite often. And I just want to clue you on on a big secret. Whenever Jesus says, beware or be on your guard, you better be on your guard. <laughs> because this is coming after you where you live. And it, and it is going to trip you up. And so it's not like... Um, there's lots of things that I say that if you paid attention, it might be good for you or not. And if you didn't pay attention, you might not be missing out on anything. But when Jesus says, be on your guard or beware, if you're not uh, really dialing in on that and focusing on that, that's to your detriment. Okay, and so, you know, like in, in Matthew 6, and right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a bunch of bewares. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, because you're going to have a problem with that. There's no way you're not going to have to, that's part of your growth in the Christian life is going to be your realizing that I have a tendency to practice my righteousness before men and fear what man thinks instead of fearing what God thinks. And I'm trying to look pretty good, you know, like I yelled at my wife in the parking lot, but I act all happy and spiritual when I walk in. <laughs> I, things are great. They, oh, God's really blessing us. God is good all the time. You know, and uh, no one, and, but you wouldn't want someone to see a, a, a tape or a video, uh, dating myself, no one knows what a tape is, but a, a video of, um, you know, how you uh, treated your, uh, your kids or whatever that morning, right? Isn't that true? We all have that, right? And so um, when Jesus says beware of something, it's because all human beings will be tripped up by this. If you're breathing, you got this problem. Does that make sense? So if you think, wow, this is really speaking, like he was actually thinking about me when he said that, that's because that would, anybody in, in this audience could say that, including me. Um, so Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, huh, if. <laughs> I've never known a brother who doesn't sin, or a sister either. I used to have sort of an idealized view of women, like men were more ungodly than women, but uh, unfortunately that's not true. So if your brother or sister sins, rebuke him. Now notice it doesn't say, if your brother or sister sins, pray for him. Or keep that to yourself and hope that uh, one of the pastors takes him aside and talks to him. 
I sure hope John Weiss takes that person aside and, get, and speaks to him about that. His uh, punctuality problem or whatever the problem might be has really been a bothersome thing to me. Well, why haven't you talked to him about it? If he sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, of course, if you're living in a single brother's household or if you're married, it might be a number considerably north of seven. <laughs> right? You know, the reason people are laughing is because they've been there. Right? At our house, it's more than seven. Right? And if he returns to you seven times saying, I'm sorry, I, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> I've always loved that. <laughs> what a great response. Like, are you kidding me, Lord? <laughs> like, let, let me, I don't, you know, like when Peter took Jesus aside and, and said, Lord, this will never happen to you in Matthew 16. It's, it's kind of one of those moments like, Lord. I think you're taking this idea a little too far here. I mean, not Sister Bertha or not Pastor Greg. Like, seven, forgive him seven times? Holy cow. Gee Willikers, Batman. Uh, Lord, increase our faith. I've always loved that response. <laughs> and in, the, in Mark's... Uh, respond to the Lord, the disciples say the same phrase when Jesus talks about serving and not doing things to be noticed and so forth, but be the greatest as a servant and so forth. So they say, you know, like, Lord, increase our faith. If, it, if it's like this, who can be saved? And Jesus says, without, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Guess what? You do not have it within yourself apart from a powerful encounter with the living, resurrected uh, Jesus Christ by his whole, poured out Holy Spirit. We just celebrated Pentecost Sunday last Sunday. You do not have it within yourself to forgive as much as you need to forgive. And in fact, what I'm uh, hoping to accomplish today is to get us to the place where we understand forgiveness is a growth process and you must journey that direction consistently, radically, uh, all the time. You must learn to be a person who's uh, slow to be offended, slow to anger, and very quick to forgive. If you don't, you'll never get out of the starting blocks of your walk with God. You'll go to church... In fact, you probably won't have that much discernment about whether it's a better or worse church or whatever because you'll be religious and you'll look at external things in the church as, you know, like whether I like the format or the liturgy or the name on the door. Or, but you won't, get the, you won't get the reality of is this the place where God is, is challenging me to grow is this the place where I can become more Christ-like? Is this the place where I can become fruitful? You'll miss the point. Religion will always cause you to miss the point. And you will not know at all that you're missing the point. 
I hope you heard that. You will not know that you're missing the point. And generally, if somebody takes you aside to, to point out that you're missing the point, in many cases, you might not have ears to hear that either. In Hebrews 12, 15... Uh, both John and Andy think the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. And uh, there's, of course, no one in church history knows exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's one of those on the top 100 questions you get to ask Jesus when you first get to heaven list. <laughs> you know, Andy's like, he'll be checking in and they'll be trying to show him where his room is and where to hang. And he'll be, yeah, but before we get into all that, who wrote Hebrews? <laughs> I have a whole list of those questions that I can't wait to ask. Um, he says, see to it, which, and um, the Young's literal translation translates that Greek phrase, looking diligently. In other words, this is one of those beware type of words. This is like, you've got to be on top of this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you know you can either grow in grace or not grow in grace? And you can obtain grace for certain areas or not obtain grace for certain areas. I've never obtained the grace of God to play the piano. <laughs> and uh, see to it that no one fails to obtain, or uh, I believe some of the translation says falls short. If you're uh, one that can look up other translations quickly, I encourage you to do so. Um, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And I actually have compared the New American Standard and NET there. And I would also encourage you to take some time to take this Hebrews 12, 15 verse and look at it for an hour, well, maybe not an hour, but think about it for five or ten minutes in context of at least Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. You know, it's always good to take any verse and look at it in the immediate context and in the context of the larger book that it's in. And this is a, uh, a scripture that will yield very good insights to you if you put it, if take some time to think on it in context. Now, I, uh, sometimes I like to uh, illustrate points by telling you how I've not done this. <laughs> uh, you know... Um, so I actually want to tell you, tell you a little testimony of uh, when I was a young Christian and I took offense in a situation and how it almost destroyed my entire Christian life. And I didn't know how bad a shape I was in. All right? So, uh, of course, a lot of you know I came to Christ in the early 70s. And by 1974, I went through a period of uh, about four or five months where I was, you know, like there was darkness to light was so amazing to me that I literally, no one had to tell me this, but I literally took about four and a half months where I wasn't in school, I wasn't working a job, I did nothing but read the Bible all day, every day, and then go to Christian meetings every night. <laughs> and uh, I was just, be, you know, I had just gotten baptized in the Spirit, I had just gone got demons cast out of me for the first time. I had just quit smoking pot. Uh, you know, my life was changing a lot, who I hung out with, what my reasons for being on the planet, 
everything changed from the inside out very quickly because of several, you know, some of you know my history and my story. So after that uh, time period, I went through a, um, oh, approximately a year and a half of just being so excited for the Lord and so filled with His Spirit and, and so reading the, you know, even when I couldn't do the 10 hours a day thing anymore, I actually went back to college and I had a rule that I wouldn't allow myself to do my university homework until I'd read the Bible at least three hours that day. I was very hungry and excited. And a lot of it was because of I was just so lost and all of a sudden he found me. And so it um, lots of amazing things were happening. You know, there's areas of your life where you, God will help you achieve sanctification and Christ-likeness in a very gradual process over 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years sometimes. My wife's still hoping I'll come around <laughs> on a number of areas. <laughs> and we just celebrated our 37th anniversary this week. She, she has hope that by the time we're married 60 years, I'll be achieve some sanctification <laughs> by the grace of God. And uh, she still hopes. But uh, there's other areas that God just supernaturally changes you. And I really was in kind of a, a, a spiritual state and atmosphere. I was in this church that was a sovereign move of God, was so powerful. Every, you know, four or five worship meetings a week that were two and three hours long. Uh, every, you know, like it was just an amazing time. There was a move of God throughout the country that was uh, known as the Jesus Movement and another one that overlapped a lot known as the Charismatic Movement. And our church was sort of a product of both of those. And, uh, you know, I not only was on very hungry and on fire, but everyone, every Christian I knew was very hungry and on fire. Um, Caleb Trimbach was here up till a minute ago, but he, his, his mother was my good friend back in those days. And she just loved the Lord. Amazingly. Like, you know, like if you ask Martha, what do you want to do? She would go, let's worship for a while. <laughs> she always would say that every time. You know, but if you get 10 or 15 people together and someone would go, let's go play putt-putt golf or let's go bowling or whatever, Martha would always go, why, do you can't, why don't we worship for an hour or two? <laughs> and uh, so during that season, God supernaturally changed a lot of things. Like I went from not even believing that I could make any progress about quitting drugs to just, that was just gone. There was no desire to ever go back there. You know, that's been 45 years. Even like sexual immorality, it was like God just changed my heart and attitude. And I had like a year and a half of not even struggling with lust or anything. And, uh, you know, uh, it was just a, uh, an amazing at spiritual atmosphere that was happening. And in the midst of this, there was a summer that I actually, uh, we're going to be talking about the, the M. Weiss principle named after my mother. Boy, that clock is really messing me up. Um, let, let's not have that not fixed next week. It's un unbelievable. Take that down today. And, um. So you, and you're all going to pay for it. <laughs> so you all want to encourage Stephen to make sure that that doesn't happen. To, this is now the third week that's been on. Um, so um, 
I actually went home for the summer, uh, you know, like, you know, once you're like 17, it's hard to live at home, to be honest. <laughs> so one of the great crosses the Lord had me bear was the, to go home for two or three months uh, and live with my parents, and, uh, which was not easy for me. I, you know, had been uh, very, you know, on my own since I was you know, 14 or so. But um, So during these summers, uh, they were times where I didn't have school and everything like that. And uh, I guess there were two, uh, two such summers. But the first one, I was in this spiritual atmosphere that I'm talking about, just very caught up with the Lord. And so as I was studying that summer, the Lord kept directing me to little books about the importance of forgiving one another and why unforgiveness was such a dangerous and damaging thing. And that seemed like it was the, like if I prayed, like, what do you want me to study today? It would be like unforgiveness. And why, why, why uh, holding, an, uh, holding an offense against someone will, will destroy you. And literally, I read books on that, probably like nine books on that that summer. There was actually one by a lady that maybe no one, has anyone ever here ever heard of Basilia Slink? Uh, you have? Uh, how did you come across her? Oh, that would be a great, one of her great topics. Basilia Schlink was a Lutheran nun uh, during, in, uh, the, during World War II who was part of the people who uh, stood up against Hitler, what was called in Germany the Believing Church, the, the, the Christians that did not capitulate to Hitler. And uh, she was mightily used of the Lord for several decades and, and wrote a lot of little books on subjects like not, not losing your first love with Christ. So she, uh, she had a book about uh, being offended and why it was so important to learn how to forgive and to go to the person who offended you and talk it out and, and live what we call the uh, shootout principle and, uh, and why it would, uh, it, it would hurt only you. Because one of the strangest things about this when you get offended, do you know that it doesn't actually matter if the person who offended you actually was in the wrong or not? What matters is that you've taken offense. And so they could have really sinned against you and they need to repent. They won't know that if you don't do what Jesus said to go and tell them that. So for one thing, you'll be withholding grace from them, but it won't affect them very much. They will have done said something insensitive or at wrong timing or been too pushy or too, you know, too angry or something in the right situation or the wrong situation or whatever. But it will, affect, it will affect you totally. Because And the reason we're going we're gonna to get into this as we get into Matthew, but it's because of how much God has forgiven us, there's no more damaging sin than to not forgive your fellow human being. Because we, again, we've, uh, we live in a time where sin is defined in very shallow, antinomian, legalistic terms. And so uh, we think our sin problem is like this big. But our sin problem, as we're going to see, is much bigger. And therefore, because of all that God has forgiven us for, if we turn around and don't forgive our brother, 
it will destroy us. God will withhold his presence, his grace, and you'll never know it. You'll, you'll still be religious. You'll still read your Bible. You'll still go to church. And you'll think, I'm doing fine. But you won't be. So in my own uh, story, to finish this little testimony, I, I read these kind of books one summer. Probably would have been, let me see if I can do the math, summer of 1975. And then the next year, I had a guy for a roommate who was a Christian guy in the church. But I didn't know him very well. And he, uh, he was a year younger and, and didn't have many friends. So he asked me if I would be his roommate. So I said, yes. Little did I know it was a sovereign, inevitable, wonderful setup from God to teach me how easily I fell into unforgiveness and to change that permanently the rest of my life. So I, I had this roommate, and he had lots of things that were difficult. For, in, uh, for instance, he ground his teeth loudly all night long when he was sleeping. He... Uh, that didn't wash his clothes very often or his shoes or wore these tennis shoes that really smelled bad. So like he smelled terrible all the time. Um, he had a mother who was one of these very, you know, can't let her kid grow up kind of thing. So his mother called every morning. The problem was, you know, like your mother calls you every morning when you're like 18. That's a little weird. And uh, it was very weird. And I, I had a job as a night guard. And so I got off work at 6 a.m. every morning, and I went to bed at 6.30 every morning. And I had to get up at 8.30 in order to make it to my 9 o'clock class. So I got two hours sleep every day during my sophomore year of college. And uh, that's two hours of sleep was, I mean, when you don't get very much sleep, you really like your sleep. I mean, it's like, I had this great relationship with my mattress. We were like going steady. And, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, my pillow just really understood me. And, uh, and uh, I really loved those two hours of sleep. The problem was, is my roommate had an 8 o'clock class, so his alarm went off in the middle of my sleep, and it was a very loud alarm, and, and, and it woke me up every day. Then he would leave for class at about 10 minutes to 8, and we had dorm phones back then. There weren't cell phones yet or anything, and they were very loud, the kind of ringers that you could not sleep through, you know, the kind of ringers that would scare you half to death when they first went off. And uh, his mother called at 10 minutes after 8 every day after he's already gone to class. And I had to jump out of bed, go to the other side of the room to answer the phone. And every day we literally had this uh, conversation. No, Mrs. So-and-so, as I said to you yesterday and the day before and the day before that, <laughs> he, lives, uh, he leaves at 10 minutes to 8. And uh, by the time you call it 10 minutes after 8, he's gone every day, and it just serves the purpose of waking me up so that I don't get the full two hours of sleep that I was hoping for. And, uh, and if you would, wouldn't mind, please don't call this early in the morning. And we had this conversation every day for like six months. <laughs> and uh, now... 
what happened was um, there were, I could go on and on, but we're, we would be out of time, about how many uh, little habits this guy had that were quite irritating. I'm sure I had just as many. But, uh, <laughs> but I gradually began to get uh, a little angry inside. And despite the fact that I'd read like nine books on the importance of being quick to forgive and how dangerous it is to fall into unforgiveness, little by little, I got more and more angry. In fact, I used to fantasize about punching him. <laughs> I really did. I started like, wouldn't it be great if I just took, you know, grabbed him by the shirt, slapped him a few times and punched him out and, and, and told him how much Jesus loves him? <laughs> you know, I, you know, I was bitter and angry. And I, you know, I even went, uh, which I, was a terrible thing to do. I even went to the resident advisor to talk about what am I, like, could I live with someone else? And he was like, you're in that Christian community. I thought you guys all loved each other and stuff like that. Well, we do, except for I'd really like to pummel this guy. <laughs> and I literally started fantasizing and dreaming about beating him up because I was building up so much resentment and anger over time. And all of a sudden, lots of temptations that, that had been gone for a year and a half started coming back to my life. Lustful temptations, uh, you know, reading the word wasn't as crisp anymore. Uh, lots of things that were, were barometers that should have slapped me in the face and said, wake up, you're, 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 you don't realize what kind of spiritual state you're in. I even went to the pastor and gave him like an argument for what, like why it might be biblical to, to punch the guy, <laughs> which the pastor didn't agree. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, so what is amazing about this, what you need to understand is his mother really did call like that. And that really was a problem. But it didn't bother him any, nor his mother. What it did was destroyed my relationship with God. And all of a sudden, I wasn't in a very good place with God because I had not seen to it that no root of bitterness grow up and by it many be defiled. And of course, I even got advice from my fellow Christian friends and so forth, and therefore it uh, you know what happens, uh, this, is, this is very famous in marriage. Like uh, two guys have a fight, and then you go home and you tell your wife, oh, that John Gray, he's so bothersome. And, you know, and then the next day, John Gray and I get it worked out, but Leah and Catherine have offenses against, against the guys, and, the, and I'll be like, I, um, going, uh, I'm going bike riding with John Gray, and and, and the, you know, Leo will be like, you're going bike riding with that jerk? <laughs> you know, like, like, what are you, t you know, because they took, they, they got brought into your offense. Now, let me tell you this. And again, these words inevitable and so forth. You will bring others into your offense if you don't deal with it properly. You'll tell your spouse, your, your, your single brother roommates, your best friend, whatever. You will. And they will be negatively impacted, impacted in their walk with God. And sometimes they'll take an offense that you 
uh, get, of, get out of, but they're still in it. And so your offense is spread like a cancer. That happens all the time. Marriages are lost over this. Churches break up over this. Businesses fall apart over this. Uh, families fall apart over this. This is the most insidious poison you can possibly drink of to take an offense against somebody. For, and it doesn't really matter whether the, what they did is actually a sin or not a sin. If you obey what Jesus says and you go and reprove them in private, they may need to repent. They may need to say, yeah, I really use bad judgment to say that to you. At, at that time, I wish I, I'm sorry that I said that. On the other hand, uh, they may not. It, in other words, as you talk it out, you might find out, you know, it really was your problem that you took offense. But it doesn't actually matter whether there's been a sin or not. What matters is that you took offense. And that totally determines the spiritual impact it'll have on you. So, you know, in the end, my, at the end of my sophomore year, and I began to realize how deeply I'd fallen into unforgiveness and bitterness against this guy, I began to work on what I call the difference between true forgiveness and false forgiveness. I have messages on just that subject alone because in our culture, we, especially in our Christian culture, we have a lot of what I would call false ideas about forgiveness, humanistic forgiveness. And the humanistic forgiveness goes something like this. I forgive them because I empathize with what they came out, what caused them to be like that. In other words, I forgive him because he does have that overly controlling, nitpicky mom, and his dad was kind of a wimp and so forth, and you know, of course he would end up a little screwed up. But you know what? Uh, it's okay, it's not necessarily harmful to put your, to walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak, or to kind of understand what they're up against. But that has nothing to do with forgiveness or not. The fact is, they meant, must, might have been an evil, nasty, rotten jerk who was really out to destroy you. <laughs> and had the worst motives possible. It doesn't matter where their offensive attitudes or behaviors or things they said came from. What matters is that you decide to, tear, to not hold it against their account. That is, you tear up the IOU. That's what true forgiveness is. True forgiveness is to say... God, they had nastiness in their heart. They hurt me deeply. Uh, they were very insensitive. This is one of the deepest pains I've ever gone through. And I really pray you'll bless them. One of the things when Jesus said, pray for, uh, for those who despitefully use you, you will actually uh, be the one who benefits from praying for them. It's a, a classic example of what some people call the law of reciprocity in the Bible that I call the boomerang principle. If you extend mercy, you'll, you'll, it'll boomerang on you and you'll get mercy. 
If you're critical and judgmental and harsh in your heart, God will be critical and judgmental and harsh toward you. And the attitude you give out will be what you're the only one that will be impacted about it. The person you're upset about may not even know that you're upset at them. Often they don't. But you can be in a terrible place spiritually because you've held this and you didn't obey verses like don't let the sun go down on your anger. You didn't deal with it the day it happened. You never went to your brother. So let's... uh, I, what time is it really? Oh, shoot. I, I don't know how that happened three weeks in a row. But uh, I'm going to be go over a little bit, but this is because I'm following that clock. <laughs> uh, that's my excuse, whether you buy it or not. I, it doesn't matter if I'm wrong or not. It matters whether you get offended. Uh, <laughs> um, so the ne- this next part I call the M. Weiss Principle. And it simply goes like this. Um, you, where you go with the Lord will be determined by how you receive the messengers God sends to you. And I always say, you'll be blessed or afflicted with bosses, pastors, roommates, by, because of God's sovereign loving grace to you according to what you need. The reason you have that obnoxious roommate is he's or she is a gift from God to you. You know, my mom was a very painful person in my life. My mom was very controlling, uh, very, too opinionated, uh, had a lot of, uh, she was never, you know, even though my, uh, so it was this very funny thing where I had, I ended up living at home for three last periods of about three to four months each, uh, during my college years, and, and then by my junior year, I figured out I need to make sure I need to take classes in the summer so I never have to go home again. <laughs> but, uh, but until then, here was the ir- irony of it. My parents had gotten born again and baptized in the Spirit and were leaders in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal from the late 60s, 1967 or so on. They were on the board of directors of a thing called the Northern Ohio Christian Conference, My mom wrote very good books about the gifts of the Spirit. My mom taught me how to cast out demons. I never even knew because of my mom's influence that there were Christians that didn't speak in tongues and cast out demons and heal the sick. I didn't even know that existed until I'd been a Christian for maybe six months or so because I just thought there were the real Christians do what's in the book. And then there's all these other people who are Christians because their parents were Christians and their parents were Christians and their parents were Christians. And it's long since been a dead tradition. I didn't know there was all these shades of gray in between, which is what we do have currently. So um, I didn't know that at first. And so my mom was probably the most painful person in my life to, to, to learn from and so forth. Uh, it was painful for me just to sit in the same room and talk to her because she had various passive-aggressive ways of, of, you know, making sure you were hurt and guilt-manipulated and so forth. But guess what? She knew the most about God of anybody I knew when I first became a Christian. 
by far. Because she'd never had the benefit of discipleship in Christian community, there were certain blind spots in her life that, frankly, she never got past. Uh, and, and, you know, you have to be in a certain kind of a Christian community and discipleship and accountability and so forth to get, the, to get those things exposed and get past them. So she never really got over some of her rough spots, but it didn't matter. I sat for hours and hours and hours to ask her everything she knew about the Bible and everything she knew about God. And to this day, no one, no one has helped me grow in God as much as M. Weiss, my mother, who's 91 years old now. No one is even in the same league. I learned more about, if I took the next most uh, helpful people that have helped me, they would probably have imparted less than half of what she helped me learn about the Lord. And none of it was pleasant. But it was who I knew that knew knew the things of God. So Jesus actually says, you won't see me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, one of the reasons we don't go very far with God, and most people don't, is because we don't discern blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they come in a package that's not that convenient for us. And we'll be like, well, you know, I would love that Grace Christian Fellowship if it wasn't for Greg Weiss being one of the pastors. If they just had like Andy and John all the time, that would be, and John Gray, it would be so much easier. But guess what? You know, I'm what you got. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, I'll take you further with the things of God. And none of it will be pleasant. It'll be painful. But that's... <laughs> But guess what? That's going to be true many times in your life with roommates, bosses. Uh, you know, the, I learned a lot about business and sales from a boss that was very difficult to be around. In fact, I have fellow pastor friends who used to work for the same guy who've told me I, I got out of there because I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't work for that guy. He was an expert at pitting one salesman against another and all kind of things. But guess what? He was more successful at business than anybody, and I was called to learn some things about business. So don't watch out that you don't miss what God has for you because you don't like the packaging. You know, if I could just learn this stuff, but I didn't have to get it from my wife. That's how like a lot of, a lot of guys are sitting there not growing much in the Lord because they don't like the package that their wife is to, to open their heart to this. I call that the M. Weiss principle. You won't see me again until you can say, now that's so important that I put it there in your notes in the New American Standard, the New King James, and the ESV. The Greek, horao, uh, means to see or to perceive uh, it means to become acquainted with by experience. It has to do with the difference between religion and relationship. Let me tell you this. Millions of Christians worldwide have, have, are stuck 
in, uh, I like this liturgy, or I like this format, or I like this, and, and they're missing the realities of what God has for them and the fruitfulness that they could have. You need to find someone who can take you further and say, take, disciple me. Now, in, just, to, just to make sure you understand this, in Ephesians 3, 14 uh, through 19, when Paul says to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, I love stuff that when you read it in the English doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that doesn't, like I want you to know what you can't know, is what he's saying. And it, means, it makes great sense in Greek, but it doesn't make any sense in our English translations. You have to look up the Greek to even know what he's talking about. The Greek for I want you to know the love of Christ is the word gnosko, and it means to learn, to know, to come to know, to get a knowledge of, to perceive, to feel, to understand. It's used in the Septuagint and in Jewish uh, literature as an idiom for sexual intercourse. Remember in the Old Testament when you're always reading that you know, and Abraham knew his wife, <laughs> and then they had Isaac, right? And then uh, it means that it's a kind of intimate experiential knowledge that you can't have unless you're like naked with each other. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to experience the presence of God in life-changing encounters in ways that go beyond the best theologian's ability to explain it. Hopefully, you could give a, if I said, uh, Mariah, I want you to stand up next Sunday and give a good teaching on the attributes of God. You could at least get one of our books on it, and probably anybody in this room could give a teaching on the attributes of God. But to know God that way is just, a, is, is the equivalent of knowing about. Now, it's an important thing, because the Bible is actually always endorsing two kinds of knowledge. One is kind of scriptural, cerebral, cognitive, theological knowledge, which you must have and you must grow in. Nobody would ever accuse our church of being against that. We are trying to cultivate a culture where everybody is a theologian and biblical studies expert and has the tools and so forth to do that. And that's somewhat... Uh, foundational to the, the, the other kind of knowledge, which is experiential, spiritual, concrete knowledge. Um, is Sidney in? Is Sydney, he's always downstairs, I wish, because he, he knows cartoons, but someone else might know this. There used to be a cartoon uh, about this, like, I can't remember if it was Hanna-Barbera or, or uh, just like there's Marvel and DC nowadays, which some of the guys have tried to explain to me. Uh, there used to be Hanna-Barbera and uh, Warner Brothers. And, you know, like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck were Warner Brothers and uh, Huckleberry Hound was Hanna-Barbera. And back when I was a kid, I would have known which ones were which. And uh, there, I, so I, I think it might have been Hanna-Barbera, but one of them had this uh, cartoon character that was this dog that always wanted a biscuit. And so the dog would go, <laughs> you know, you'd always be begging for a biscuit. And so finally, like, the owner or the master or whatever would throw him a biscuit, and he'd eat it, and then he'd go, mmm, 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 like, he loved this biscuit, you know. And, and then he would shoot up in the air, 
<laughs> he'd go like, Psh! and then he'd float down like really slowly. Ah. That's what Paul means when he says, I want you to know, he wants you to know God that way. He wants you, hopefully you've had this experience. I know lots of people who have, I've had it once, but there was a time when, when I was fasting and seeking God, it was a longer fast and so forth, in the presence of God. Years later, I, cannot, I can't even talk about this experience without getting emotional. The presence of God was so strong that I had to ask God to tone it down. I couldn't take it. And I realized that this is the kind of presence of God you're going to have to have a glorified body in heaven to be able to handle. If you had the presence of God like that on a regular basis in this life, it would kill you. Right? That's what Paul is saying when he says, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know it so experientially, so, so manifestly, so acutely that it's, you can't even, you know, even like the guys like Andy who are really smart and know the Greek and John and all these guys, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't tell you. They wouldn't have the right vocabulary to be able to explain it. Now, I may have to kind of make this a two-weeker and do this at night, but if I do, I won't take the 10.30 again. I'll maybe take the 9.30, or maybe I'll just have a special session for anyone who wants to hear the rest of this. Because what I want to go into this is this tell you this. Offense is both the greatest crippler and it's your greatest opportunity yet. It will come. In Revelation 12, Satan, one of the verses on the scripture verses, I believe it's on, that's John Gray's version. Where's the uh, copy of the version that was for everybody? Um, I should have that somewhere here. Yeah, so it's on the back page, second from the bottom, where he's first called the deceiver of the whole world, and then he's called the accuser of the brethren. So let me tell you a little bit about accuser of the brethren, even though we're past the time, but it's only 5 to 12. Um, if you don't know anything, like the Bible says not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Hopefully, you know, the further you walk with the Lord, the more you'll be aware that there really is our demons, there really is a Satan. And if he can't win the battle of keeping you from being a Christian at all, he's going to want you to be sidetracked on less than important issues. He does not want you to become what God wants you to become, a fruitful, consistent fisher of men who's constantly reproducing the faith in others. He wants you involved with issues that don't matter that much. And one of the ways he does that is besides being a deceiver, he's also an accuser. And that works on various levels. I always say if he gets you on the deceiver part, don't turn around and complicate things by letting him uh, win the accuser part. So guess what? As a deceiver, he wants you to sin, right? But as the accuser, he wants you to wallow in condemnation about it. 
right? He wants to get the most out of that sin, so to speak, for his purposes. By having you live in, in self-accusations. And the, the way out of that is, is the gospel. It's to understand, hey, Greg Weiss is a louse. He is, does eat too much at family reunions and other venues, you know, or whatever. He, he talks too long and had, keeps the people too long. He has all kind of sinful problems. But guess what? In your water baptism, one of the things hopefully you understood is, you know, Greg, John Luke O'Gion doesn't live here anymore. Greg Weiss doesn't live here anymore. That guy is dead. And in the gospel, you, you have to build a new identity in Christ. Don't let your identity be anything less than what you are in Christ. No matter how you feel or how you have behaved or what attitudes you've struggled with, your identity must be in the resurrected, seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ. And God the Father, when he looks at Daniel Williams, doesn't look at uh, his driving record. <laughs> he looks at Christ's record. Right? He looks totally at who Christ is. Which is why I had Daniel drive my car this morning. <laughs> Uh, so, now, likewise, just like he's the accuser in terms of condemnation, he's also the accuser in terms of your brothers and sisters, your boss, your room, Christian roommates, the, the other guys at the campus ministry house. He's always accusing, you, you have thoughts, uh, critical of them that come to your heart and mind all the time. You have them toward your spouse, toward your kids, towards the people you're supposed to be in covenant with in the church. And what you do with those thoughts will make or break you forever. And in very practical ways for the rest of your Christian walk. Every time uh, the, the accuser is not just... Um, like, you know, the Bible talks about how uh, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand and so forth. Satan understands uh, probably more than most of us about the kingdom of God. And he wants to keep it divided. And to the degree God wants to use someone in your life, to that degree you'll have accusations against them. That's why marriage is a spiritual battle. You know, uh, when Daniel first was uh, taking the sound equipment to Wright State and back with Christiana, and he was just starting to notice that she was a wonderful person who was very, loved the Lord and very lovely and all this, he didn't have the level of spiritual warfare that he has now in terms of accusations against that other person in his heart. If God wants to use a pastor in your life, a brother, a sister, you'll have accusations against them. And there's also always a factor of, of this. Our culture, you know, C.S. Lewis brings this out in his 1950s book called The Problem of Pain. Our culture is quickly becoming a culture 
that defines love as the acceptance and approbation and encouragement all the time, everywhere, and never challenging. And we think that love is always to be encourager. Now, there are guys like John Gray who are more encouraging than others. But love is also challenging. And if you are going to love one another, sometimes when you speak truth and love to one another, you're going to guess wrong. In other words, you think the person's having this or that attitude that you need to talk about it. But after you talk it through, you realize you misjudged. You didn't know enough. And you shouldn't have brought that up with them. You get that? That happens. You challenge someone to do this or that or whatever, and then you realize, oh, they weren't far enough along in the Lord yet for that. I should have waited a year before I gave them that challenge or whatever. That's inevitable if we're going to have any reality in Christian community. Right? It is. You know, a husband and wife will often have to talk about, and pastors and disciples, etc., have to talk about things like, you know, gee, you were late for church and so forth, and what's the deal with why you're late every week or whatever? Well, maybe it's because I, I don't, you know, like church starts at 9.30 and I get off work at 9.45. And when you confront them about why they're late every week, you find out they have a very legitimate reason why they're late every week. And you shouldn't have confronted them. But you have to be able to get past that, like by talking it all through and just and forgiving one another. If you don't do that, you'll start down a road of darkness. And it's like in those Star Wars movies, once you start down the dark side, it's a, it's a very difficult trip back. So when you are offended, not if you are offended, notice how many times I love in Matthew 6 when Jesus does not He doesn't say, if you pray, go into your inner room. He says, when you pray. He doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. When you read Scripture, not if you read Scripture. When you get offended, not if you get offended. Make sure you're committed to the not letting the sun go down on your anger. In other words, get, get an appointment to get it talked about today. Now, sometimes you can just call it like John Gray, call me up and we talk for two minutes on the phone and it's done. Because what happens is eventually you have history together and a little offense here or there is no big deal. Right? You know, like if, uh, if I owed John Gray $10 or something, he probably wouldn't even let me know because he's like, eh. You know, we've done so many things together and so forth. Who cares about five bucks or something? But sometimes uh, when you, you haven't built that kind of rapport with one another, you have to say, it really hurt my feelings when you said this to me. And uh, because I thought you judged me unfairly and so forth, or you didn't know that I really hate that color, whatever the reason, you know. And that's inevitable unless we're going to become the mega church, which the whole point of the mega church is we build a culture where that doesn't happen because nobody knows each other very much. And we're all approbation and encouragement, and you're about to have a breakthrough, and, and God is good all the time, and that's all you ever talk about. But if we are going to grow in Christ, we will offend one another. 
And every time you do, it's an opportunity to come to know God. Because what you, you know, I, I started by telling the story of my sophomore year. What I didn't know was that God had planned for me 17 years down the road to have a time where everybody that I knew turned against me. And there was lots of hurt and lots of offense everywhere. And I had to be very, I had to have a deep habit of being quick to forgive. It had to be second nature. And I remember a person who uh, lots of people said this person uh, tried to destroy me and intentionally and everything like this. I didn't think they did. I just thought they were misunderstood some things. But everyone's like, why don't you hate this person? Why aren't you angry at them? And I remember that uh, God had me on the way to work pray for this person every day for about four or five years. And then I was asked to come into a, a meeting with some Christians that I used to be friends with that we weren't as close anymore. And they said, we thought you'd like to know that this brother so-and-so really crashed badly and, he's, and it's, he's doing terrible and boy, God paid him back for all this evil he did. Um, aren't you excited to hear that? And I started to cry. And I said, a man of God has fallen. And in this case, he lost his ministry. What, why should I be happy about that? I said, I cannot believe you're sitting here thinking that I would be happy because he got paid back by God for what he had done. And I had, I said, I'm sorry, but you never knew me. And I can't be in this meeting. I can't do anything except weep over this guy's hurt and loss. And you know why that was achieved? Because I did what Jesus said, pray for those who despitefully use you every day. And I had talked it through with the guy and, and we'd come to reconciliation. Everybody else thought I should be living a life where I was hoping he'd get his and get paid back. That's re oh, that's a terrible place to be. I hope you're never in that kind of place. When, when true forgiveness not only includes tearing up the IOU, which we covered that part already, but it also includes praying for them so that deep inside of you, you really want that God not to hold it to their account you want them to be blessed. If you hear something great happen to them, you would be generally happy. Gen genuinely happy is what I'm trying to say, not generally. Uh, <laughs> um, you'd be, if something terrible happened to them, uh, in fact, in this, that, that wasn't the end of the story with this guy. Certain pastors, including Ray Nethery and stuff, spent a couple years trying to restore the guy. And then when they brought him back into the ministry, they found out he hadn't changed or grew and so forth, and he had to end up resigning. And, he, and to this day, he's completely out of the Christian ministry. And I was in a, a second meeting a couple of years later where they were telling me that, the, that it you know, didn't work out well for the guy and so forth. And I literally had to walk out of that meeting. 
And it was about an hour before I could drive my car home because I was weeping so uncontrollably over this guy's hurt and loss who did me more damage in my life than any other person ever did. But interestingly, it's like the M. Weiss principle, he was also a guy who was my pastor for many years, and he did me more good than anyone else next to my mother in my life, too. And while everyone I know talks only about this guy in terms of how much evil he caused so many people, I think of nothing except how much God used him to help me know about the sovereignty of God and all the other things he taught me. I hope this all makes sense to you. Don't let the sun go down on, its, on your anger. Don't, uh, you know, whenever I give these kind of messages, I know there's going to be 15 people that want to talk to me afterwards and get a message. But, but I, you know, the funniest one I ever had uh, was, uh, you know, end the story with this, even though it's late. Uh, uh, literally once when I was teaching on this subject, um, I've always believed that, there, that uh, the, the right to arm bears is an important freedom. And, uh, <laughs> but I've never known anything much about guns or had guns or anything. Or I know a lot of Christians have guns, and, and it's kind of important that we have a culture where people have guns. Uh, but I've, you know, like I've always had other responsibilities. I've just never gotten around to learning much about guns. There's probably a little bit that I'm a little afraid of them because you're always afraid of things you don't know. But so it, it, I actually was pastoring a church where the brothers in the church were concerned that I didn't know anything about guns, even though we believe it's okay. So they had bought me a gun as a present. <laughs> and uh, it was very nice, like nine millimeter with a clip that held around like 12 shots. Very, very high quality gun. Cost hundreds of dollars, I heard. And I had never, like I stored it in my safe or whatever, but I'd never used it. So I gave this message and all these people wanted to make a point. Well, one brother in particular goes, I'm really offended at you. And I said, really, why? And uh, he said, because you've never used the gun we gave you. And if you're going to have a gun, you need to go out and learn how to use it and target practice and gun safety and everything like that. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you set it up and I'll, uh, you, you know, I'll go out with the brothers and learn how to, you know, load a gun and be safe with a gun and shoot a gun and so he set up this outing where like about a dozen brothers went out to this guy's farm and, and we're all going to shoot and they're going to teach me about guns. And, uh, and I thought, if this guy's offended about this, the least I can do is be a blessing to him and do this and learn about guns. And uh, I was a little surprised. Like when we got out there, I'm like, you guys have this many guns. They, like all of them had like three and four different kinds of guns. <laughs> and and uh, I said, man, uh, but, you know, that one was, uh, frankly, a little silly, I thought, but, but actually it was important to him. And it actually helped our relationship a great deal that I said, okay, if you're going to have a gun, uh, which I hadn't even bought, they had given it to me, but I said, then I should probably learn a little bit about how to use it and how to use it safely because, obviously, guns are a lot less dangerous if you know what you're doing with them. And so I 
fortunately didn't shoot anyone while we were practicing or hurt anybody, but I learned. Well, anyway, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry this message is so long, uh, but I'm less sorry if, if this becomes, this needs to become like one of the most important things you do in life. Learning to keep short accounts, to get, never let a problem go, go beyond the sundown of that day, make an appointment, do the shootout principle, which I didn't review the shootout principle, hopefully we all know that one, get it worked out, come away reconciled and able to receive from one another again. If you don't become that kind of person, you will always live in a state of unreality about how far you've gone with God. Always. And you'll be in the Lord 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And I know people like this very well. And you'll still be stuck in wrong thinking about a lot of basic things. Because you'll know more about God than you'll know the power of God. And real Christianity, like things like speaking in tongues, casting out demons, healing, having encounters with God where in worship you know that you know that God, and you go, I know that God spoke to me and said this. You, God, Jesus died to give you that kind of relationship with him. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, with big leadings of the Holy Spirit, you shouldn't check them out with other Christians and stuff like this. But you should know the Lord spoke to me about this and that. The Lord spoke to me about marrying Catherine. Now, it was confirmed in dozens of other ways, but I, I wouldn't have married her had I not had a sense very strongly from an intimate, powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit that... She's the one that's going to have to suffer by being married to me. <laughs> no, in other words, that God wanted me to marry her. So I don't know, you know, I probably just need to stop. I don't know how to communicate this anymore. I beg of you, don't be a kind of person who uh, has little grouchy things that bother you about people. One of the, one of the uh, consequences of being on the wrong side of this is you grow up to be an old curmudgeon. You do, like in the, remember the Muppets and stuff? There was like the old grouchy guy. He was always my favorite. Not Oscar the Grouch, but like the, uh, the guys up in the, who watch the uh, operas and stuff. And the, you know, like you'll always be a whiner, complainer, grumbler. Now, if you're quieter by temperament, you'll just be that in your heart. If you're more outgoing, you'll, you'll infect more people about, with it. But you'll not be a person full of grace. I, what I want for you, is, you know, when Jesus, think about, think about what Jesus did for us in regard to this. He was falsely accused. If there was ever a person that deserved to be received, yet he wasn't. They were so upset about his level of bringing truth that they thought they had to kill him. The, it, there's a great book called Who Moved the Stone, which is all about all the pr principles of the law that the Sanhedrin broke at Jesus' trials. It is trial. You know, he was rejected by his own people, by the Romans, etc. He was spat upon. 
which is a universal symbol for shaming someone. He hung naked. The reason the, most, the Bible talks about how the women stayed at a distance, because they had some modesty, and he was naked. He wasn't, you know, we show him with a loincloth, because we have some modesty. But that's not how it was. And you, you know, like, when he's carrying his cross, he tells the women, of, don't weep for me, weep for yourself. He's still giving. From the cross, he's, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Wow. So anyway, uh, let's, let's uh, end, end this and have Jason come up. So I, I don't know how I can deliver my soul any better than that. I, I hope it will be helpful to you.